Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever meet. Now, today's show, we're going to talk a bit about Take Two. We're going to talk a bit about Tears of the Kingdom, and we're going to end it by talking about that big Overwatch 2 announcement from last week. But first, we have to talk about Xbox. Since last week, two more markets approved their Activision Blizzard acquisition, which was Europe and China. Now, to address the competition concerns identified by the commission, Microsoft offered the following licensing commitments with a 10-year duration. Quote, a free license to consumers in the EEA that would allow them to stream via any cloud game streaming services of their choice, all current and future Activision Blizzard PC and console games for which they have a license. A corresponding free license to cloud game streaming service providers to allow EEA-based gamers to stream any Activision Blizzard's PC and console games. Um, now, this is obviously a very uh, kind of interesting proposition that was added in there. One that I would say is still pretty favorable on Microsoft's side. Now, this is something I have brought up in the past when discussing this, which is that no matter what provisions are put up against Xbox, like, hey, you know, you guys have to do this in order to make this fair, right? Um, so that's what Europe did. But one thing that Europe didn't do and, and frankly could not do is basically enforce this in perpetuity. That's one thing that we're not really aware of. Like, well, what happens after 10 years? Does Microsoft now have to go back to the... To, uh, the European Commission in order to say, no, we don't want to do this again or uh, kind of be forced to renew. I sort of can't imagine that that's the deal here, which means that basically what Microsoft is doing is they're going to Europe and they're saying, sure, you know, we, we'll do these, this 10-year deal. Remember, they were doing this all over the map a few weeks ago. They struck that 10-year deal. Um, who was that they did it with? Boosteroid, uh, NVIDIA, they did it with, with, with NVIDIA. I forgot what the other names of the companies were because obviously they were really small and that's something that a lot of us are really super duper aware of. And, you know, Microsoft puts that together under the guise of, well, we're bringing uh, games to more people. Like, we're the good guys. This is why we're doing this. And they use Call of Duty as the perfect example, which they can sort of inflate the number of people that will have access to Call of Duty via streaming because... Call of Duty has never been put on a streaming service. It's not something that Activision uh, has sort of ever experimented with. If I'm not mistaken, I don't even think Activision has ever put anything on Game Pass for PlayStation now. It could be wrong about that, but I don't think they have. So Activision has very much stayed within sort of the business spectrum of just B to C, business to consumer, straight sales, and of course, downloading and micro, excuse me, digital and microtransaction. So this is kind of interesting to me because, you know, the European Commission puts it forth as like, hey, we're happy we came to this agreement, uh, almost like, hey, we, we brought Microsoft down a, a peg. But in all honesty, Microsoft still wins outright because within those 10 years, what you're doing as Microsoft is you know you're obviously gaining data for your own games that you're you're putting on these services, Activision Blizzard. It sounds like 
they're only forced to put Activision Blizzard games on that cloud. That's what specifically it said in what I read. It specifically says all current and future Activision Blizzard PC and console games, which means that it seems like Xbox is not forced to put any of their other first-party stuff out there. Uh, and the thing about it is that, um, like I said, they're going to be able to, to gain all this data. Cloud is going to continue growing. Uh, Xbox is going to continue to be the leader and be better and, and, and kind of get better at it in terms of latency and access, ease of access, different ways that you can access um, xCloud. And then once the 10 years are up, they can just say, yeah, you know, we're not going to review, renew any of these contracts. And I think this is the, the thing that a lot of people need to understand about this Activision Blizzard deal is that, you know, I. I've been very vocal about not being opposed to it because I do feel like it would increase competition within our industry, especially with uh, PlayStation. I think PlayStation is already making plans for if and or when this were to happen. And I think it's going to make PlayStation better. I think it's going to make Xbox better. But um, the one thing that I've sort of been, the drum I've been beating this entire time is just ensure that we don't look at Microsoft as like the good guy light because that's what Microsoft wants to paint themselves as. But the thing about it is that uh, companies aren't very nice. <laughs> like, you know, for companies, green is the only color that they see. And um, it's, it is very, very possible that they can and will continue to increase their market share in cloud and then let's say that they, they, they decide, hey, you know, we're not going to renew this, right? So they go to NVIDIA and they say, hey, you know, we're not going to renew this uh, this deal. Or they go to Boosteroid and they say, oh, we're not really going to renew this deal. Then basically what happens is that everyone that was cloud streaming is now forced to cloud stream through Xbox. Uh, and I've, I've brought this up before where the switch from one cloud service to another is a lot easier and has less friction than switching from a PlayStation to an Xbox for example, so I feel like you would have pretty good turnover if Xbox were to go ahead and make that decision. Now, the UK's CMA, who, if you remember a few weeks back, uh, pretty much denied this deal from going through. They put out a statement opposing um, the uh, opposing Europe's approval, claiming, "quote Microsoft's proposals accepted by the European Commission today." would allow Microsoft to set the terms and conditions for this market for the next 10 years. They will replace a free, open, and competitive market with one subject to ongoing regulation of the games. Microsoft sells the platform to which it sells them and the conditions of sale. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind, right? It's like, even though it's saying like, hey, they get a corresponding free license uh, to put, you know, Call of Duty, Crash Bandicoot, Tony Hawk on their streaming services, uh, the games still need to be purchased. So at the end of the day, Microsoft just looks at it as like, all right, well, we're going to be making more money. So if you have a streaming service in Europe, the only way to be able to stream Call of Duty, whatever, is through those services. But you have to buy the games, right? They're not going to really be sort of Game Pass independent. I'm sure they're going to put on Game Pass and xCloud. But when that choice is given to everybody else, if they want to buy and keep the latest version of whatever, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, if it comes out latest, yeah, that's, I think that's a rumor that it's going to be called Modern Warfare 3 or whatever, right? If it comes out this year and people in Europe decide to buy it through Boosteroid and whatever other services are out there, they have to pay full price for the game, right? They're paying that 60 they're paying that $70 for that game. Um... So at the end of the day, this is this really was just like a win-win-win for um, 
for Xbox. But then the opposite side of that coin, which is something I do disagree with the UK CMA on, is that when they say that Microsoft can set the terms and conditions for this market, with or without this deal, Microsoft is still setting the terms for this market because Microsoft is the only one that's in this market. It's really right now, in terms of big players in video game streaming, it really is just Microsoft and Amazon. There really is no one uh, else left out there. PlayStation, yeah, they have uh, PS Now that folded into PS Plus. I'm not 100% sure if this if it's backed by the Azure architecture that Microsoft built. Apparently, PlayStation and Microsoft had come to an agreement a few years ago, but I couldn't find concrete confirmation that Azure is what you know PS Plus's streaming is running on. Uh, I'm I'm going to sort of safely assume because that agreement was made between those two companies a couple of years ago, and we never heard about that disagreement sort of falling apart. So at the end of the day, with or without this deal going through, even if they are not allowed to buy Activision Blizzard, nothing is going to change. Microsoft is going to keep accelerating the cloud market because they are the only ones in that market. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like... Um, like a few days ago, I saw uh, the latest uh, a film called BlackBerry. And it's a film that basically just chronicles the story behind BlackBerry and the fact that that cell phone held on to the majority of the cell phone market for quite some time. And it's like, yeah, Black Bar BlackBerry accelerated that market because they were the only ones in that market. It really wasn't until Apple came in with the iPhone and then Google made Android that that competition was what really squashed them. But I feel like sort of the same way with Xbox. It's like, how, how can they be um, told like, no, you can't be allowed to accelerate this market when they are the only ones that put up the amount of time, money, and resources to build the infrastructure to enter that market. No one else wanted to do it. Um, Amazon has come the closest and still, even with Luna, it just doesn't seem like Amazon is really sort of taking that seriously. Now, one thing that's interesting is that I didn't check, so I don't have it in my notes, but technically this means that if Amazon Luna is operating in Europe, which I think it is, then they would have a free license to allow people to buy Call of Duty and stream it through Luna, which would sort of, you know, I guess accelerate um, their user accounts if they choose to do that. Obviously, no one's going to force any of these companies to do that. Um, because at the end of the day, like I said, when you when you perform this move, you're making Microsoft more money. You know, <laughs> like that's what PlayStation was saying with their with the Call of Duty deal, which was like uh, when you stream it or you you uh, play Call of Duty through like PlayStation Plus Extra or Premium, whatever it is, all microtransaction money would have gone to Microsoft. So all of this is just basically like sort of like showing the nice guy, but in the background is really is still like business maneuvers going on. And it's like, I understand the PR of it all, like Xbox wanting to spin this as like, hey, we're the nice guys, we're buying this company, we're, we're bringing this, these games to more players. But at the end of the day, you're just accelerating what you're trying to accomplish was getting a bigger piece of that pie. And of course, making more money, which I'm not trying to knock them at all. But like I said, let's be honest with one another. This isn't about bringing more games to more players. I've, I've said this plenty of times before. If that was the deal, then Starfield would be coming out on PlayStation later this year. It would never have been canceled, right? All right, our next story is all about Take-Two. For those that 
forgot, Take-Two is the parent company of the mighty, mighty Rockstar Games. And they also, one of their other big publishers is 2K with NBA 2K, things like Mafia, uh, recently Midnight Suns. But obviously, they're really known for uh, being the parent company of Rockstar and 2K. So Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick spearheaded an earnings call where a few announcements were made. But one of the key ones was that he announced for its current fiscal year ending on March 31st, 2024, company expecting net bookings in the range of 5.45 to 5.55 billion. That's up from 5.28 last year. But here's the, the, the big bomb drop. He said for its next year, which runs from April 2024 to March 2025, net bookings are expected to jump to over $8 billion. So within one year, they're talking about from going from $5.55 billion to $5.28, sorry, uh, from $5.45 to $5.55. Um, and then the, the year before that was five point. 28. So they, they jumped it from 5.28 to 5.45, let's say. And all of a sudden, with, with between April and March, they're expecting to jump to over $8 billion. So of course, everyone knew what is expecting to drop between April to March. There literally is only a single game that these guys can calculate will get them, you know, uh, uh, an, an almost $3 billion jump in net bookings. Now remember, net bookings is not revenue. Net bookings is sort of like uh, orders. So, you know, GameStop, Best Buy, Amazon ordering this many copies for them to provide to their consumers. So you can imagine, well, what game would <laughs> cause this type of jump in net bookings? Well, of course, there's only one, which is Grand Theft Auto 6. Strauss Zelnick said, quote, in fiscal 2025, we expect to enter this new era by launching several groundbreaking titles that we believe will set new standards in our industry and enable us to achieve over $8 billion in net bookings and over $1 billion in adjusted, unrestricted operating cash flow. <clears throat> GTA Online. Uh, so yeah, so obviously this is G Grand Theft Auto 6's release window. He did not specifically say Grand Theft Auto 6, but... 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's just no way they can have that much of a big jump in numbers without a game as big as Grand Theft Auto 6. Now, I want to say, uh, I told you so. If you listen to um, uh, Camp Koji, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. But a few years back, this is my prediction that Grand Theft Auto 6 was launching at the earliest in 2024. Um and that's when I expect this uh, to be launching. They're probably looking for, I would, I would say, obviously before holiday 2024. But I could see like a very nice September release, I think would be re really sweet for a, uh, for a Grand Theft Auto 6. It's pretty insane um, just thinking about how well this game is about to do. I think they announced, I don't have it in my notes, what was the final number? But I think they announced within the last three months, Grand Theft Auto V sold 5 million more copies. And I think what's really interesting about Grand Theft Auto V's growth is that it's really fueled by two things. Grand Theft Auto Online and those Grand Theft Auto role-playing servers on PC. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I've been a Grand Theft Auto fan for my entire life. 
I first played it on the PlayStation, the classic top-down, and I've been a fan of the series ever since. I have my favorites, just as anyone else. Grand Theft Auto V is, I don't think it's even in my top five favorite Grand Theft Autos. I thought Grand Theft Auto V was extremely mid. I thought the technology was amazing. But I think it was the first time that I played a Grand Theft Auto game where I was like, man, this, you guys got to change the formula, man. Like the classic Coca-Cola just ain't enough anymore. So I think that that's my hope, especially seeing a lot of the stuff with the Grand Theft Auto 6 leak. It looks like they're really trying their best to really shake up the formula and take a lot of the things that we traditionally look at when we think about a Grand Theft Auto game and sort of mix it up. Because the one thing about Rockstar that I will say about their single player content, you know, one of my favorite games from last generation was Red Dead Redemption 2. It's hands down on my list of the top 10, one of my top 10 favorite video games of all time. But when it comes to mission structure, yeah, you, you that formula really needs to be changed and, and, and sort of looked at. So that's sort of what I'm looking forward to that, that I hope they revolutionize when it comes to the Grand Theft Auto franchise. But it's just really amazing to see a game that is over a decade old <laughs> selling 5 million copies in a few months. Those are numbers that you would usually, like developers would be popping champagne if they got that within the first three months of a game's initial release. Like if you got 5 million, even, even, even 5 million in a, in a 12 month window would be like a really great success for a lot of companies. The fact that they're doing this after this game has survived and now through its third generation and who knows when there's like PlayStation 5 Pro, it'll probably be updated again. I'm sure we'll get Grand Theft Auto 5, maybe even an update for uh, PlayStation 6. Uh, I guess we'll have to sort of wait and see. And I think this also leans on another theory that I've been having for a while, which is that Rockstar is going to attempt to do their own role-playing stuff uh, for Grand Theft Auto Online. And um, I think it's also the reason why Red Dead Redemption 2's online has been so lackluster is I do believe that Rockstar took a lot of that team to now work on Grand Theft Auto 6's online. And, you know, Take-Two isn't stupid. They, I, I mean, I, it, it's very difficult to see the success that role-playing servers have had. Uh, and I just can't imagine a scenario where this game releases and they don't tap into role-playing and basically steal the idea of modders. I feel like that's exactly what's about to happen. Other things that he said was that uh, he expects mid-generation console refreshes. I think I talked about this the last episode that we did where I was like, I really don't understand why we're getting mid-generation console refreshes. I feel like they are completely unnecessary, especially because I feel like so much of these current generation consoles, I'm going to speak specifically about the PlayStation 5 because they've definitely pushed the limit a lot more than Xbox. Once we really think about it, especially when we think about Sony's <clears throat> internal teams, they haven't really had many PlayStation 5 exclusives. And what's funny is that when you see a PlayStation 5 exclusive, when we think about Ratchet and Clank, the uh, Horizon Burning Shores DLC, I'm sure what we're going to see, hopefully, uh, uh, this later this week with Spider-Man 2, 
is you can finally see them really tapping into the power of the PlayStation 5, where some of these games have looked amazing, right? Horizon looks uh, looked amazing. Um, God of War, Ragnarok obviously looked amazing. But we can also agree that part of that development was held back because everything that was created, you had to ensure that it was also running on the PlayStation 4. So now Sony is, is it, it seems like PlayStation is now ready to enter into an exclusive generation where I don't think that every single game is going to be PS5 exclusive, but I think that games that they really want to push the envelope, they're now sort of telling their teams, you know, they're, they're giving their teams kind of that blank check to do it. Whereas before they felt like they needed to go to Santa Monica and gorilla and say, no, you guys also have to make this work for PlayStation four, the shortages, COVID lockdown. We're not ready to fully transition to PlayStation five. But now we re we are, <coughs> excuse me, PlayStation 5s are really plentiful. Nowadays, they're really flying off the shelves. The, the install base is over 30 million now. I think it's something that they're they're definitely ready to, to, to go forward. So I feel like now we're going to really start tapping into what the PlayStation 5 is really capable of and, and, and what relying on that solid state drive, what PlayStation's internal studios are really capable of. I just don't see the reasoning with that thought process why we need a PlayStation 5 Pro. I just kind of, I, I don't know. I, I personally don't get it. I understand like a PlayStation 5 Slim or this rumor with Insider Gaming where the next PlayStation model is going to be sort of digital only. And if you want discs, you have to buy a separate drive. Okay, understood. But I just don't get the point of a PlayStation 5 Pro personally. Now, uh, and lastly, he commented on $70 games by saying, quote, we're not seeing a pushback on frontline price. What we're seeing, consumers are seeking to limit their spending by going either to the stuff they really, really care about, blockbusters, or to value, and sometimes it could be both. And the good news is we have a bunch of blockbusters and we have a wonderful catalog. I think that we are reaching a point where publishers need to get a lot smarter with um, production, not only just production budgeting, but budgeting correctly for the type of game or the game that they are getting set up to release. I think that publishers now need to start treating video game projects the same way that movie studios treat film projects where you, you you know you sort of see the see the treatment from for, for the film maybe you get you get an initial script you sort of think about all the pieces that you could put together okay I think we can get this director we can get this writing room uh, I'm pretty sure we can secure these actors a lot whatever it may be and then you sort of use that data you sort of look at how long it's going to take to shoot the production budget how much it's going to cost uh, the amount of time until you're able to actually release that um, that project, and then at some point in that in that in that development, you decide what's the release schedule for this um, uh, for this project, and at some point, you either decide it's going to come to theaters or you sell it to a streamer, Netflix, Hulu, or whatever. And a lot of those things happen sort of really early on when you're trying to sell scripts or whatever. And I think that right now we're at a point where publishers need to start looking at video game projects this way, where I, I don't like to look at it as like 
you know, straight to streaming is not like now the straight to DVD. I'm not trying to say like, you know, you have to pick out the garbage and kind of throw it out there at a cheaper price or put it on a streaming service. It's not really what I mean. I think it's more about looking the type of game that you're building and really asking yourself that question, doing the proper research to say to yourself, in this current climate of A, $70 games, B, so many free-to-play titles out there, and C, the rise of subscription services, Ubisoft's Uplay, uh, Microsoft's Game Pass, PlayStation's PS Plus, even PlayStation's Essential Plan. You, you are competing with those free games that come out every single month also, right? That is part of your competition now. And PlayStation's still been doing a really brilliant job when it comes to those monthly releases. The Amazon Lunas of the world. Uh, NVIDIA GeForce Now. Heck, you're even competing with Epic Game Store giving out free games a week. They, they, they're giving out, I think, Death Stranding once again this week. Um, uh, Amazon Prime Gaming sometimes gives out free games. You're really dealing with so many people being able to access really pretty solid experiences for either really low price or completely free. Like I'm constantly and consistently seeing so many sales of some, some, some great titles where it's like if you're really on a budget right now, like I just saw, I think uh, Newegg is selling like uh, the Batman trilogy for like five bucks. That includes the Arkham trilogy arguably one of the greatest trilogies in video game history for $5. Each of those games being $2, less than $2 each, right? If I'm putting out a new $70 game, that's sort of what I'm competing with. A lot of people that are now on a budget and having to be very mindful about spending. And I think that now we've reached a point where there's, you, you combine that with so many games having really horrible launches because they're so expensive to produce, they take so much time to produce. Um, you 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 couple that with the the initial pricing of these games, where a lot of these companies are not asking for seventy dollars. I think a lot of them consumers right now are more than happy to wait, because they have access to once again a lot of great experiences. Where it's like, oh, you know, I I, I can wait. So it's like, yeah, you know, you're looking at a, a game that might have recently come out that's seventy bucks, and you're kind of saying to yourself, ah, oh, you know what? I never played Death Stranding. I just got it for free from Epic Games. I can play that. And once this drops down to 50, I'll, I'll pick it up. I think I think more and more consumers are really being smart about the, the amount of money that they spend. And it's kind of interesting that he said that we're, they're not seeing pushback when uh, a, a pretty recent high-budget release from them was rejected at the $70 price point, which was Marvel's Midnight Suns. That was a game that was created by take two, excuse me, created by 2K, published by take two, which is their parent company. And I remember distinctly that game coming out at $70 and being almost immediately rejected, even though it got pretty good reviews. I feel like a lot of it was a, they suffered from really extremely bad marketing. They just did a really bad job marketing that game. And B, I think they announced that game way too early. So you combine those two things. I think that's, that's where they lost steam. And if I remember correctly, I think that game had like a 30% official price cut where even 2K was 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 advertising this 30% price cut. I feel like it was within 60 days. And if I'm not mistaken, it might have been within 30 days of release. That is proof that people have rejected your $70 game. So I don't understand why he's saying that. Now, look, there are going to be these tentpole releases 
where you can, where basically publishers are literally going to be able to ask for whatever they want. If your game is that big, people are going to, they don't, they don't care. They'll give you the extra 10 bucks. Tears of the Kingdom is a perfect example. That is, you're getting a lot, and I mean a lot of value for that $70. Heck, Take-Two could announce Grand Theft Auto 6 is going to be $80, and no one would bat an eyelid. Like, like yes, we'd all be having that discussion, like, wow, I can't believe they're, they're, they're charging $80 for this. But it won't affect, it's really not going to affect their sales. No one is going to miss out on Grand Theft Auto 6, a game that people have been waiting for for over a decade for an extra $10. Like there are those releases where people are going to say to themselves, you know what, we're going to, I'll give you the extra $10. But then it's, it's almost like, you know, how many times can you fool a consumer before they smarten up? And I think that's what that's take that's going to be take two's issue in my personal opinion, when it comes to NBA 2k this year, I feel like they've burned their customers way too many times when it comes to NBA 2k, where they got way too greedy with NBA 2k where they set this expectation to, to their consumers that um, not only are we asking you to spend $70 every year our expectation is that you're going to spend way more than $70 because of the my player and the creative player type of stuff so you have a company like take two basically releasing like a hundred dollar plus game every single year I think you're going to start seeing pushback from that this year so I think that it's it's not really about, you know, uh, what was that he said? Consumers are seeking to limit their spending by going to either blockbusters or to value, right? And I, I agree with that, but I feel like there is a section in the middle, blockbuster value. And it's something I've brought up on the show before, which I do think that these companies need to start budgeting their single player games in a way where you're doing free post-content DLC and you're releasing the game early, uh, not early, but you're releasing the game um, within a, a cleaner release schedule, three or four year cycle instead of a five or six, ideally more closer to a three year cycle. And you're specifically removing stuff to add in later. So you're, you're, you're sort of doing a typical four year cycle, but at three year, you have a finished product that you can put out into the world and sort of start generating revenue while you sort of theoretically continue to finish the game by putting out stuff while ensuring that that original release still feels pretty good at like a 50 or 60 dollar price point and I'm, I'm i'm very interested to see how ubisoft does with assassin's creed mirage because i feel like if assassin's creed mirage does really well i think that's going to be another indicator on top of what capcom did with Resident Evil 4 which was, it was a pretty good success, especially for a survival horror game that came in at $59.99. And, and my hope is that publishers start to see that and say, wow, you know, well, we can build games a little bit cheaper, get them out a lot faster, cut down in the production cycle and be able to sell them at $50 and $60 and potentially make more than we did with a $70 game. If, I think if Midnight Suns launched at $50 or, or obviously the highest ceiling of $60, I do think that that game would have done a lot better. Now for our next story, I wanted to talk about The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and its amazing success that I'll be honest, everyone saw coming from a mile away. I don't think anyone that anyone that tells you, see, I told you they were going to sell 10 million copies. is like, yeah, a blind man could have seen that they were going to sell 10 million copies of this damn game. So here's some of the records that they've broken since the game released a little over a week ago on May 12th. In the UK, 
it sold 54% higher than Hogwarts Legacy. Now, Hogwarts Legacy is, up until this point of the Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom's release, the most successful single-player title that has released in the year 2023. Now, what the other thing that's interesting about that 54% uh, increase over Hogwarts Legacy sales is that it's only accounting physical box sales, and that's because Nintendo does not um, share digital numbers with any outlet. The only time that they share digital numbers is when they put out their own particular totals and they sort of just roll them in with physical, but they don't separate it. So there's, unless they specifically mention it, we don't know what the percentage is between digital and physical. So that makes it even, it, it probably was even higher than 54%. If you um, factor in digital, uh, especially because Nintendo Switch, there's a lot of people playing digital on that console. In France, it sold nearly 500,000 physical copies during its launch weekend. Now, by comparison, FIFA 2023, the best-selling video game last year in France with 1.7 million units, rookie numbers, sold 420,000 copies physically. But that was across PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch consoles during its launch weekend. So, Tears of the Kingdom on a single console, outsold FIFA, the most popular game in France, probably since the beginning of video games. <laughs> it outsold it uh, by close to or over 80,000 copies on that launch weekend. And once again, that does not count digital. Absolutely amazing. Then Nintendo officially announced that the game sold 10 million copies within three days. By comparison, Within what's it been like six years or something like that, Breath of the Wild has sold 30 million copies. 30 million copies in six years. Tears of the Kingdom sold a third of that in three days. It's only the sixth game in 30 years to get both a Famitsu 40 and an Edge 10. And it is currently the highest, excuse me, the highest rated game ever on open critic now on um my youtube channel i did put up a review if you haven't seen it uh for tears of the kingdom and um this this has been kind of a, a very interesting release for nintendo and i think that there's so many lessons to be taking away from this game like i don't want to i don't want to say that this is like a generation defining game or like an earth shattering sort of game but i think from a development and publishing standpoint i think that tears of the kingdom is going to be a game changer in sort of so many ways like there's so many things that i feel like this game does that from a, once again, a development standpoint makes so many other games look like they were built by amateurs. It's really amazing. And I think that obviously you do have to overlook anyone that tries to sell you this narrative that, oh, it's 30 frames per second. Look at the trees. Look at these graphics, blah, 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 all this crap, all this garbage. And it's like, here's Nintendo sort of proving to you, to, to, to anyone, that Breath of the Wild probably had half the budget of a lot of these AAA game releases. And they sold 10 million copies in three, game, three days. And, you know, Nintendo just continues to prove time and time again 
that it's not only just about sort of generational commitment that their fans have. It really just boils down to a company putting what matters most smack dab in the middle, which is gameplay, which is really creating systems and creating a foundation that puts out something that you've never played before. Because the system that were put together for this game and the fact that it launched in such a solid state, I just found out right before recording, uh, and I have to read into the article, that apparently A.G. Aonuma confirmed that when the game was delayed in March 2022, it was pretty much done. But the delay was really for polish. So it took them a year in order to ensure that everything, like the game was built front to back, you could play it, but it took them a year to ensure that everything was was going to work. And it's kind of one of those bullet points that I look at that I think that publishers and developers really need to study this game because there's so many things that are really unique to this game's success. The fact that, it was built on an existing map, an existing foundation, but it still took that and it really circumvented everything to make it feel like, I think what I put in my uh, my review, it being a new different game. Even though I, I feel like they could have taken more risks, I do feel like they nailed that new different game feeling. Um, also sort of showing other developers how important it is for your game to, well, you know, work on day one because we've been having such a such a big issue in our industry for us as consumers, you know, to ask for the fact that I'm, if I pay $70 for a video game that, you know, it actually works. And that's the thing about this game is that there are so many ways to essentially break this game. I, I've seen, especially there's a particular shrine with like these rails and I think I've seen it. I think I exaggerated on, on Twitter. I, I, I put a, a, a tweet where I was like, I think I've seen this, this shrine completed 20 different ways. I did exaggerate a bit, but I think realistically, I've seen probably like eight or nine videos where I saw, um, like I said, eight or nine completely different ways to get through that, um, that shrine. And, and that's one of the things I do love about Tears of the Kingdom is... It's developed in a way where Nintendo says, here are the tools, but it's, it's sort of like they give you the tools and they give you a shrine and they put a puzzle in front of you and they don't sort of stop you from circumventing all the work that they did. Right. So developers put all this work in for like, yeah, I'm going to put, uh, you know, uh, this switch here that controls this ball, but then you have to go through these lasers and you have to climb up and then move the ball and then put it on the wing and then fly the wing over the laser so the ball doesn't drop. And then you finally drop it in the hole, whatever it may be. And, you know, someone can just walk in, see the whole puzzle, uh, you know, lift up a, uh, a platform that they find really high, get on top of it, rewind it, and then just paraglide over it onto the exit. And, you know, Nintendo, it's not like when you enter it, Nintendo says, hey, in order for you to to to, to get past this shrine, we're going to remove Ascend or you can't use Recall. You know, they don't they don't force you to 
complete either the game or the puzzle the way that they think is the best way to do it. And I've seen so many video games do that. And that's what I consider the illusion of freedom, where they tell you like, hey, you're free to do whatever you want, do all these different things, but we're going to, but, but then they build a wall because the developer feels like, no, you're not playing. Look, we put too much work into this puzzle. You're not taking the easy way out, right? And it just really extends on that philosophy that they built with Breath of the Wild, where it's like in Tears of the Kingdom, you can do pretty much the same thing as Breath of the Wild. If you want to go ahead and just try to face Ganon, I think the last speed run I saw was like an hour 18, which was mind-blowing to me. And they say, like, we don't stop you from doing it. I think there are a lot of developers that would say, no, no, no. You can't just go over to the boss right now this early. That's not how any of this works. They will put this BS wall or whatever and say, yeah, you need to do, you need to work for 30 hours in order to reach the end of, um, in order to reach that boss. But you know, the, the game is open world and you have freedom that it, it there's so, Oh my God, I, I don't even know how to, how to like properly explain it in this amount of time. But there, like I said, there are so many lessons to be learned from this game that I'm I'm hoping a lot of um, people are going, a lot of developers and publishers are hopefully going to learn because there are a lot of lessons to be taken away from this release where Tears of the Kingdom, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, those PlayStation Xbox heads are dismissing it because whatever, it looks childish, it looks kiddie, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you really are missing out on are, you know, honestly, one of the best experiences I think I've had with a video game in quite some time and a video game that honestly really has me rethinking the word freedom and open world where you do have a lot of these developers that try to sell you on freedom and open world and you can do whatever you want but then they arbitrarily build up these walls and say, no, 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 you can't, you, you can't do that. It's sort of, you know, one thing it reminds me of, it reminded me a bit of Hogwarts Legacy. In Hogwarts Legacy, you can get uh, the broom that you can fly around in. And one thing that I loved about what the developers did is that for the most part, they didn't put up walls for when and where you're able to use the broom. So there are these moments where you sort of have to climb through towers or do like a little bit of platforming in certain sections of the world in order to sort of collect these like balls of energy. I don't even remember what it did. I think it, it, it increased one of your special moves or something like that. And, you know, those sections were specifically built. Developers built in a way where like, yeah, you go here and then you move this box and you get on top of the box, you move up here. But what the game didn't do was then take the broom away from you at those moments. So now I, as the player, have a choice. Well, when I walk up, I can say to myself, okay, I'm going to do this with regular platforming. Or I could just pull out the broom, which has been afforded to me. It's something that I earned that I paid for. And I could just fly up to the top of the tower, fly in. You know, I don't even have to get off the broom. I just fly into that piece of energy and I get it. Same thing like they had these small puzzles called Merlin trials. And some of them were you had to platform on these stone um, rocks. So you, you get on top of a stone rock and then you jump from one rock to another in a certain sequence. So maybe that's like six of them. You have to, you have to jump on each of them without touching the ground. Once you get to the sixth one, the trial is completed. I learned very early on that I could just get on my broom, go on top of that platform, sort of brush it with, with my feet sort of touching it with the bottom of the broom and it registered. 
So I just floated to all six rocks and it was done. And I love that because it is, it's not the illusion of freedom, right? The developers aren't saying, hey, that tool, the broom would make this too easy. So I'm going to remove it for you, right? That's one thing that I think that Tears of the Kingdom does really well that I'm hoping more developers learn from when it comes to injecting what they consider freedom into a video game. And now our final story deals with Overwatch. So in a developer live stream on Tuesday last week, Blizzard announced that to keep resources devoted to the live game, it has made the decision to cut hero missions. Now this was in a live stream where they put together and they were gonna talk about sort of the future roadmap of the video game. Executive producer Jared Noose or Nose said, quote, and so we're left with another difficult choice. Do we continue to pour all of that effort into PVE, hoping that we can land it at some point in the future, or do we stick with this set of values we've aligned on and focus on the live games and focus on serving all of you? With everything we've learned about what it takes to operate this game at the level that you deserve, it's clear that we can't deliver on the original vision for PVE that was shown in 2019. What that means is we won't be delivering that dedicated hero mode with talent trees, that long-term power progression. Those things just aren't in our plans anymore. We know this is going to be disappointing to many of you, which is why we wanted to bring it up before we talk about the roadmap. And to be perfectly honest, it's been really difficult for many of us and a lot of folks on the team who poured their heart and soul into that stuff. Aaron Keller added, quote, going forward though, rather than doing a big PVE release and rather than pouring all of our effort into these singular releases, we're planning to make co-op gameplay and co-op experiences just part of our live roadmaps. We want you to be able to experience it more often and with more variety than we had originally announced. Now, I was actually personally surprised by how big this story became sort of in the gaming sphere last week um because it just felt like even people that weren't playing overwatch were kind of talking about it It just kind of was a big piece of news last week a lot bigger than i thought it would have been and um i've been i've played overwatch since the original beta and i remember it was a co-worker of mine who was a pc gamer who loved blizzard that first told me about Overwatch, told me to watch the trailer. But I remember at that point, I, I didn't really have a gaming PC and I knew Blizzard was all about PC, so I didn't really pay attention to it until they confirmed that the game was, was coming to consoles. That's when I decided to try out the beta, fell in love with it, uh, and I've been playing the game on and off ever since. Uh, even though I haven't been playing it lately, a little game called Tears of the Kingdom has been, has been keeping me a little bit busy, right? And when when Overwatch 2 was first announced and the PvE thing was announced, the way that I looked at it was like, that looks really cool. That looks neat. But it's not really what I personally play Overwatch for. Overwatch, to me, will forever be a PvP thing. So this announcement for me personally, it didn't really do too much in terms of like disappointment. I saw a lot of people getting angry and justifiably so. I get it. To me personally, it, it didn't move me at all. It was kind of one of those things where I was like, eh, I wasn't really looking forward to it anyway. The PVE stuff, whenever they add it to the game, I'll try it out. Like 
a few days ago, I, I went back on the game in order to try out the latest one, which is called Star Watch. Hated it. I thought it was horrible. <laughs> I, did, I did not have any fun with it. I played it once. I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not playing this uh, ever again. My Overwatch 2 consumption is really, I'll go in for a few hours a week and I'll play competitive play. That's really what I like to play with the game. I'll play ranked. Um, I play support. I'm diamond. Uh, very close to getting masters. Even though I haven't played in a while, I don't know if I'll be able to achieve that. I'm probably a lot rusty. So I just really love to play um, the competitive mode. But I was... But I also was not surprised by how many people were upset. I was, though, surprised by how many people were surprised. And I think that's the thing about kind of video games and, and, and just publishers in general, is that more times than not, publishers will always show you who they are. You got to trust them the first time. So when 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 they made this announcement, when I saw the news come across my Twitter feed and I was like, oh, they canceled PVE. I just sort of like, of course they did. Like this, this is Blizzard. Of course they canceled PVE. But I do think that this is like there are a lot of people that were kind of talking about like this is the beginning of the end for Overwatch 2. I'm going to be honest. I kind of agree. I do strongly feel that the cancellation of those hero missions and sort of that dedicated single-player experience, I think, does mark a little bit of like the beginning of the end for Overwatch 2. More so than even everything else that they've done. I remember I put out a video before Overwatch 2's launch where I was talking about the way that they're going to monetize the game and how aggressive they are. I've been, I've been pretty right about all those things that I spoke about. Um, like I had talked about them, they're going to start charging for free skins, which they have been doing within the last few weeks. You know, any changes that they make are going to be minor in order to get you to spend more money. Like, you know, they've, they've been holding true to everything that I've been saying. And when I look at Overwatch's, the way Overwatch 2's PVP has been going, I actually look at it a lot more positively than than negatively because I do think that the one thing that I will praise Blizzard for is that they've kept to their promise. And I think that's something that when I think about, for example, um, 343 with Halo, that they can't do more than two seasons a year and they haven't been really been able to deliver on that promise. Blizzard has been kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum when I look at it. This is a, this is a, 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 a team that before Overwatch 2 launched, they made all these promises about roadmaps and content updates. And I think they said every 10 to 12 weeks or whatever, I think it was, there was a new season. They've kept to that 100% since the game launched last year. They haven't missed a beat. When they talked about, hey, within, uh, we're going to launch with a tank. Within the next few months, we're going to launch another tank. On, on this year, which is, you know, 2023, they talked about that we're going to have two supports coming out this year. They've kept to that. We just got Life Weaver uh, next season, which is uh, in, I think, like two months, two, three months or whatever, the season after next. They're going to release another uh, support that's on the map. It looks like they're going to keep to that. So that's one thing that I will absolutely praise Blizzard for is that when it came to that roadmap and them saying, this is what we're trying to deliver, they have delivered on it. I know that a lot of people 
give them a lot of shit with the way that they monetize. I absolutely do not. And the reason why I have not given Blizzard shit, the only time that I've really criticized them is putting is is locking a hero behind the battle pass. That's one thing I will never agree with them on. I think it's a really cheap, scummy way to try to sell battle passes. I think they would be able to do just fine without doing that. Um, but outside of that, I have zero, and I mean zero issues with the way that they've monetized the game up until now. And the reason why is because if you are looking for a really solid uh, PVP experience, Overwatch 2 is an amazing download. It's definitely worth, worth the space on your hard drive. Yes, it's tough if you have a brand new account. It takes some time to have to download characters. Yes, it sucks that um, being able to customize your character is going to ask for you to open up your wallet. They've sort of improved that a bit. Within each season, you do get some credits so you can at least get either a few recolor of your skins or, or get like a, a simple emo for your, for your favorite hero, or maybe even you can get one, um, you can earn, I think enough credit to get at least one legendary skin, um, certain skin. Cause you can't unlock every legendary skin with those in-game credits. So they've gotten a little bit better at it. And if you're a player like me, which is that, Hey, I'm just here to play in a, a really fun PVP game. And I really don't, care what the hell my character looks like it's a first person game i i don't give two shits about anything like that i think you know for a free to play game i think it's really good they don't really lock a lot of stuff behind a paywall like yes the best skins you have to pay for them yes the skins are 20 bucks but i've been saying this before where it's like if you if you make something 20 dollars and there's a line around a block and you're selling it consistently why would I, as a consumer that is consuming this product for free, I'm not paying for it. Why am I going to you and saying these skins are too expensive? That's the thing that people need to, 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 to realize. Lowering the, the, the amount of money on a skin doesn't lead to more sales. If you're a person that hasn't spent any money on this game, me making a legendary skin, me dropping it from $20 to $15, those like five bucks, that's not going to make a difference. It doesn't mean that I'm going to sell more skins. That's not really how this works. That's like, this is why I brought up like the Gucci example when I talked about Overwatch 2's monetization. If Gucci drops the price of their sweaters from 150 to 100, it doesn't really equate to more sales. If you think 150 is expensive, chances are you still think $100 is expensive. The same could be said about these skins. But the reason why I think this is the beginning of the end for this game is that actually I want to talk about two things. Number one, this being the beginning of the end. And number two, this notion of uh, what has Overwatch, what has Blizzard been doing over all of these years? Now, for those that don't know, at some point in Overwatch 1's development, a character named Baptiste came out. And I think he was the last character that they added to the game. The last hero that they added for about three years. There was like this three-year gap where nothing new was happening with Overwatch. They were just recycling um, old events. There, were, there was pretty much no new content. Uh, Overwatch players were sort of trained that every year you were getting something new and something fresh, whether it was a new side activity, a new event like Summer Games or the Christmas event. 
these, uh, you know, capture the flag being added, uh, the Chinese New Year events. And it really felt like there was this sort of exponential growth where you had these amazing skins being added. Overwatch League was doing great. You got some great skins from there, the MVP skins, uh, new modes, new maps. Uh, it, it just really felt like multiple times throughout the year, there was something new and fresh that expanded the game, new cinematics, new lore. At some point, the game just stopped updating. And the broken promise that a lot of people are talking about when it comes to Overwatch was that at some point in the development, when they announced, especially when they announced Overwatch 2 in 2019, they showed off that PvE. That was basically Blizzard telling Overwatch fans, guys, this is why we were not updating the game. And it was it was almost like their, their like video apology to the fans where they put out that PVE and they said, guys, this is what we've been working on. We've been working on what you guys have been asking us for. The number one thing, obviously outside of balance changes and, and new heroes and, and you know, just, just continuing to keep the PVP fresh. The big thing that people were asking for was single player content. Excuse me, not single player, but uh, PVE content but more importantly, the expansion of the story. The story, the foundation of Overwatch is really, really well built. And Blizzard has created some of what I consider some of the most iconic character, some of those iconic character designs, lore, backstory that I've seen in video game over the last few years. You know, it really felt like, I don't even know how, to, how else to explain it, but it's, I guess, I guess you could probably compare it to like a little bit of like Smash Brothers where every, you know, people have like their favorites, right? And they have their own individual backstories. And, you know, a lot of these characters have different connections and relationships within one another. And like I said, everyone has their favorites and you're hoping that at some point they're going to focus on your favorite and really delve in to that backstory. It's, it really is pretty grandiose. And you think about like the apex of that storytelling. I think the apex was probably like Sombra being revealed. That was when when really everyone was was really hooked in to that story and the characters. So that's really what the PvP the, the PvE was trying to introduce. And the way that I looked at the PvE for Overwatch was it's not something that I thought to myself that I would really be consuming a lot, but I looked at it as like, wow, this is going to help this game grow. And the way that I look at Overwatch 2 currently within the last year or since it first released in, in, in October of last year is that it's almost like they're adding floors to a building. So it's like they're building to the sky. They're building upwards. But PvE was a great way to build outwards, to like widen that net of trying to bring more people into Overwatch. There are a lot of people out there especially nowadays in the year 2023 that don't have the stomach for PVP. And I'm not trying to say that, that people that are looked upon as like weak or soft because uh, they can't take being cursed at, or, you know, all this garbage where people tell you like, Oh, you never survived, you know, Xbox 360 modern warfare days. Like it's such BS in my opinion. I think it's more about PVP has really entered this point of toxicity where 
I feel like there's 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 really no looking back because when I think about the modern warfare days of PvP, yeah, there was a lot of shit talking, but it was shit talking between teams. Like I was shit talking to the other team, they were shit talking me. There really wasn't that much inward fighting in 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 PvP. That's something that's very recent within the last five years. And I think it's been accelerated by streamers talking crap by TikTok and YouTube and all this video short form streamer content where everyone's trying to be the best, the best, the best, the best, the best. This is the best setup. This is the best um, rollout for you to, this is the best attachment, the best weapon, the, the fastest TTK, like everyone's stressing the best, the best, the best, the best, the best, where it's like, I'll be playing something like Overwatch and it doesn't happen all the time, but I'm doing my job as a support. But at the end of the day, someone can die once and that's it. I'm garbage. I don't know how to play my character. I'm getting cursed at whether it's in uh, voice chat or text chat. And there's just a lot of people that don't want to put up with that shit, especially as gamers get older. When you when you're working a nine to five, and you get home and you're tired and you want to just play an hour or two of a, of, of a really fun shooter. You just don't want to hear that shit, especially if you're not a person that's playing Overwatch 10 hours a day. You're probably not that skilled at it. You don't want to be called trash, garbage, kill yourself, you suck, uninstall this game for three hours in a row, right? So PvE, in my opinion, excuse me, uh, excuse me. yes, PvE, I keep getting too confused, was the perfect solution to that, to that uh, demographic, those people that were existing sort of in a pocket that you could have invited in to your lore, invited into your ecosystem. And honestly, you could have had single player content and build a single player battle pass or I keep saying single player, but you guys know what I mean. Uh, I guess you could still go single player, I guess, matchmake with people, but that could have been another amazing revenue stream for Blizzard. But the thing about it is that the reason why I don't look at this so much is like, wow, this is a broken promise. What have, what have you guys been doing for three years? What happened to all this content? This content was built, right? We saw it. We saw those hero abilities. We saw those talent trees, which were honestly, I'll, I'll be honest, they were really exciting. I thought it was really cool. You know, when they show May turning into like a, a an ice ball and being able to, to knock people over like bowling pins and things like that. Uh, Hanzo having like this homing arrow that kind of bounced around um, from enemy to enemy. It was like a cool way to like take your favorite hero, which with mine being personally Zenyatta, and being able to play him and view him in all these different ways. So they were talking about like transcendence instead of healing it. It's actually a, a, a sort of this this ball of damage where instead of transcending, you're just flying around doing like this AOE damage attack and just thinking about the prospect of, of them introducing raids and something replayable where you can get 10 people together playing 10 different heroes and you're all working together to defeat this really big Omnic, which was like sort of in a bit hinted at with that first big major cinematic that they, that they made introducing echo, for example, um, you know, that's the disappointing part about all of this. And that's why, to me, this signals a little bit of like the beginning of the end. For me personally, when I think about Overwatch as a growth opportunity, is that you can clearly see that the people at the top, the ones who are making the decisions, have chosen fast money over slow wealth. And I think that 
within the advent of what's happening within our industry, the increase of $70 games, so many great solid free-to-play titles that you're competing with right now, uh, $70 games being launched in a completely broken state, the Redfalls, the Star Wars, the Forspokens, for example, games that just don't look, don't run good, don't live up to the expectations that have been set. More and more people are being very, very careful with how they spend their money. And when you as a company put forth such a major promise to consumers and then you lie about it, that's the other big piece about this, is that within this, they confirm that they made this decision over a year ago. That was a major, major part of this announcement was that they confirmed like, hey, this wasn't a decision they made two weeks ago. They decided that this that version of PVE that everyone saw does not exist. They made that decision over a year ago behind closed doors. Then they lied about it. They were very selective with how they spoke about the future of Overwatch, where they said, hey guys, PV, PV, um, PVE is not going to be available at launch, but it's coming later. And you know what? They technically were right. Star Watch is PVE, right? It's sort of PVE VP. So it's like they were still kind of keeping that promise, like, hey, PVE is coming, but they knew that that version of PVE that everyone was excited for, that dedicated campaign, that meaty, replayable hero missions, being able to grow my favorite hero and, and sort of customize them in the way that I want, that version is gone over a year ago. But they knew, the people that made the decision, those people at that marketing team knew that before October started, when they were really ramping up, what was it like? August, I think it was, July, August was really when they, when they really started ramping up the marketing for that game. They knew that if they announced, hey, guys, sorry, uh, we had to cut the PvE in order to keep the PvP going, they would have lost a lot of sales. I think they there would have been a lot less sales of the Battle Pass. They would have been a lot less sales of like that Overwatch initial pack that was trying to sort of introduce people that had never played Overwatch, where I think you paid like 40 bucks and you got a bunch of skins that you might have missed with the original Overwatch, skins that were exclusive to that pack. They would have definitely suffered from those sales. And I think that's the, the scummiest part about all of this is the fact that they blatantly omitted that that version of PVE did not exist anymore. And they expressly did it for the purpose to continue to, to make sure that they had a really successful launch. And I think going forward, yeah, it looks kind of cool that they are going to add some PVE stuff. The PVE stuff sort of sounds a little bit interesting. I do like some of the PVE stuff that they've been doing um, and some of the events they've been that they've been doing within the last year. I think a lot of them are interesting, but I forgot who it was, but there was some Overwatch content creator. I can't remember who it was that said this, where they sort of equated it to having Netflix, but then they only drop one, one, one show a month or something like that, or one, one movie a month. All it takes is just one bad movie for you to lose interest. And I think that's the, the issue that they're about to face. And 
what what honestly what should have happened was that Blizzard should have completely outsourced outsourced Overwatch's PVE. I think that they should have found another team, find someone to head up that team and dedicate PVE over them, pretty much move everything over. Um, because I think that they are losing on a big amount of revenue because they're thinking short term. And part of their decision, I understand, right? Because if they would have made the announcement of like, hey guys, we want to put out this dedicated PVE, but it's taking more resources than we think. What would have happened is that now the PVP suffers. And remember, the PVP is like the cash cow, right? That's the one that, that feeds the PVE. You need that to be successful. And that that's one decision I think Blizzard was right about. You need to have consistent content. You need refreshes. You need the Fortnite formula. One of the reasons why Fortnite continues to be successful is because they keep refreshing. They keep it exciting. Every few months, it feels like a different game. That's what this game needed. If they would have kept the team split and said, we're going to try to do PvP and continue these hero talent trees and all that stuff on PvE, and we're trying to do that simultaneously, then we would have probably seen one hero every year instead of two to three. Instead of having a new season every 12 weeks, it probably would have been one, one new season every four months. And at that point, your PvP suffers. You're not selling enough skins. Now the bank is not growing in order to fuel that PvE. So it's like part of me gets it. But Blizzard could have made the decision and found the resources. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar company. They could have definitely found the resources, pulled one of those whatever Call of Duty teams out, You know what, what they have, like 12 studios <laughs> working on Call of Duty. Um, or they could have outsourced it and, and, and try to make a, you know, try to bring a, a third party team in order to help them do it and make it sort of like a little bit of a like separate but connected sort of thing where the PVE experience is now 40 bucks. And then, you know, you sell battle passes that stream into the, the, the single player and maybe for like 15 you have a battle pass that works for pvp and pve so when you're doing pve you're unlocking pvp stuff and there's like this cross synergy between both of those sides i think that this was a major mistake from blizzard and what sucks about it is that this is not a developer decision this is you know what you have to remember is that back when Jeff, who used to be the producer of Overwatch, when he left, that to me signaled the end of the PVE. That's when I, I felt like I don't think we're going to have the same scale because it's very apparent what happened there. We don't have to be behind closed doors to see what happened. Jeff had a vision where he wanted to deliver something that he knew fans were, were asking for. More lore, more story, more growth within the characters. Once those people at the top of Blizzard, they probably looked at the plans and they said, okay, but if we do this, we're taken away from PvP. And they, they, they made the financial decision. They made the one that they knew would make them more money. No, if I put more resources towards PvP, if I'm outsourcing the creation of these skins to more regions around the world, trust me, the creation of these skins, the concept art, the art behind it, they're not really all being built inside Blizzard. That would be impossible to create the type of output that they've been able to create. You have to outsource that type of stuff, right? So you're outsourcing all of that stuff and it's all funneling to the same thing. $20 skins. 
I'm going to be able to make way more money off that than doing a PVE experience. Let's be honest. That was the decision that they made. That's why Jeff decided to leave. But the reason why I look at this is it's very short-sighted. Is this because Overwatch by now, in the year 2023, should have been way bigger than it actually is. That's the one thing that drew myself and so many people to Overwatch. You know what it was? It wasn't the gameplay. It wasn't the abilities. It wasn't the maps. Like, all that stuff is great. It was the characters. That Overwatch team, that art team, built a roster of characters that, in my opinion, still has been matched to this day. Like, when I think about heroes from, like, Valorant, uh, from Apex, or any of these other games out there, they're going to hold a candle to the Overwatch characters in terms of their personality, their individuality, the fact that their characters of all shapes, sizes, colors, orientations, I've never seen something like that, where I'm playing a video game, and myself as a Latino, I, I instantly gravitated towards... Um, um, towards Sombra because she was speaking Spanish. I can't even tell you how rare it is. Like I hear someone speaking Spanish in a, in a video game. And I'm sure that so many other people felt the same exact way to see someone speaking Thai or speaking Chinese or Japanese or uh, Russian or whatever, all these other languages that they have, Korean in the game. The Rasa they've been able to build, that brand should be way bigger by now. Like there should have already been an Overwatch film or a TV series. That should have been built years ago. There should be way more of a presence of Overwatch when it comes to toys and 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 posters and art and and clothing and all that type of stuff. Partnerships and licensing, none of that stuff has happened. You know why? Because that's slow wealth. And Blizzard has only been thinking about fast money. And I honestly, like last, a few days ago, actually, I used a website because I was kind of curious, like, what's my Overwatch account worth? <laughs> and it spit out that apparently my Overwatch account is worth like $800, maybe even $1,000 because I've, I have a lot of rare skins, one of them being like Pink Mercy, which is one of the rare skins in the game. And I'll be honest, there's a part of me has for the first time ever thought about, eh, should I just should I sell my account? <laughs> because I honestly do feel like this is a bit of a peak for Blizzard, excuse me, for Overwatch. Because the one thing that, that, that this PVA cancellation has proven to me is that Blizzard is not interested in growing this brand. They're only interested in making more money quickly. Now, 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 now. And when every single design, design, excuse me, design decision that you make as a company, when every decision is made with the express purpose of creating more money, making more money, and that's it. It's not about creating a better experience. It's not about giving your fans what they want. It's not about extending the brand, extending lore, uh, whatever. When, when those decisions are made with the express purpose of serving a more revenue being brought in, your your game is going to fail. I'm sorry, but your game is going to fail. In the year 2023, that stuff doesn't work anymore. It just doesn't. Gamers have smartened up. They've learned to reject it. Look at what happened with Gotham Knights. Look at what happened with a game like Suicide Squad. Look at what happened with a game like Multiverses. Those things are quickly rejected. 
they just don't work anymore. You missed your window, you know, like that. This, this should have been done in Overwatch one. If you're going to try to attempt this, I do as a fan of this game, I'm not saying that I'm going to completely stop playing it because of this, but I do truly feel that this is going, this is sort of the beginning of the end of, uh, of Overwatch two. And I think it's, there is a part of me that's, that sees it like this is really sad to see, especially as a person that's like, man, I want more story for like Zenyatta or Anna, my two favorite heroes. And it's just like, it doesn't really look like that's going to happen. So, yeah. This week's hot releases, May 23rd, we have After Us, PC, PS5, Xbox Series X, May 24th. Hello Neighbor, Search and Rescue, PS5, PSVR 2. May 24th is also the PlayStation Showcase, 4 p.m. Eastern. I'm very, very much looking forward to this. I really feel like PlayStation is going to blow the door off the hinges with this one. I'm expecting big, big things for this one. May 25th, Cassette Beast comes to Switch, Xbox, Xbox Series X. It's also hitting Game Pass. The Lord of the Rings Gollum, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. This game is going to fail horribly, man. <laughs> like this game, like I feel like it's been talked about for so long and the advertising has been for shit. I'm sure there's a lot of you that are like, oh, that Gollum game is coming out this week. <laughs> that game is going to fail hard, man. And then May 26th, Forspoken gets its first expansion, Intent of We Trust, PC and PS5. Now time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. NetherRealm has officially announced Mortal Kombat 1 for PC, PS5, Switch, and Xbox Series X coming September 19th. An Amazon Italy product listing leaked its first DLC fighter pack, including Quan Chi, Omni-Man from uh, Invincible, Air Mac, Takeda, those are MK characters, and of course we have Peacemaker from uh, DC, that big James Gunn show and the Suicide Squad film, and then of course Homelander from The Boys, so it's like the superhero-themed uh, DLC. Um, first of all, fighting game fans are eating. You guys are eating so good this year. Street Fighter Six, Tekken Eight, and now Mortal Kombat One. You guys are eating so well. I'm eating well because I'm a huge fan of the FGC. So I have so much content to watch <laughs> within the next year. So that's what gets me personally excited. I'm, I'm curious as to why they call this Mortal Kombat One instead of just calling it Mortal Kombat. Like I get it. It's like a reboot, uh, playing off a of Mortal Kombat Eleven story. Why wouldn't you just call it Mortal Kombat? I think that would have been a better choice. During Q and during a Q&A session, Sega commented on future films by saying, quote, we would like to take on challenges outside of the Sonic IP should the opportunity arise. So I'm going to give you guys three Sega films that I think would do really well in live action. Number one would be Bayonetta. I think Bayonetta will work really well in a live action format especially if you sort of do do like a mix of action, sort of like Scott Pilgrim style, not like comic book style, but sort of looking at it in that terms of like an action video game feel and a feel for a film, uh, I think would work really well. Another Sega IP, which I wish there was another game for, but I think would work really well as a film that isn't, I, I think a lot of people won't even realize it started with a video game, Condemned. I think Condemned. So Sega IP, which I wish they would, Give me another game. I loved Condemned when it came out in 360. And I think that that story will work really, really well. It's a psychological horror thriller. And then the last one, honestly, a Sega IP I would think about, The House of the Dead. I would try to bring that back. 
like I said, make it really cheesy, pulpy, uh, zombie, uh, really gory action, kind of like John. I would do like John Wick meets House of the Dead, like that really type of pulpy action. I think it worked really, really well. In a recent Famitsu interview, Jim Ryan briefly spoke about PSVR 2 by saying, quote, PSVR 2 has just been launched, so it may be a little early to judge its popularity, but we are happy to see many positive reactions from users and the media. We'll continue to push forward so that those who purchase PSVR 2 can enjoy it for a long time and we can also secure profits. I think PSVR 2 might be my most famous I told you so of all time. This is I, I, I called the failure of this product years years ago and i've and to this day i still say like i hope i'm wrong but this probably might turn out to be my biggest uh home run call of all time because if your product is doing really well and you're jim ryan the president of freaking playstation ps5 doing so well you'd be floating you want to be sitting in an interview talking about we're happy to see positive reactions you'd be talking raw numbers you'd be talking about how well it's doing you'd be talking about how uh, wow, the user base is so much better than the original PSVR. We we beat those predictions by this much and that much. And this is how much of the market. You'd be talking about all of that. This is a really solid indicator that PSVR 2 is not doing well. And then finally, he also reiterated PlayStation's commitment to PS5 exclusivity. Quote, we also fully understand the importance of PS5 exclusive titles. As I mentioned earlier, PlayStation Studios' main responsibility is to make games for the latest PlayStation hardware that players will enjoy. We are increasing the number of PS5 exclusive games and staggering the release of the PC versions. I often have the opportunity to ask game fans for their opinions. When I ask them how they feel about the time lag, they often say they feel the release of a PC version two or three years after the release of the PlayStation version is acceptable. First of all, Jim Ryan, you're probably talking to PlayStation fans because only a PlayStation stand will say, yeah, wait two or three years for that game to come out of PC. But if you're talking about PC gamers or just unbiased gamers like myself, we would say bring in a PC as soon as you can because then more people are able to play your video game. I'm not surprised in the slightest bit by uh, what Jim Ryan said. I still think it's the right strategy for PlayStation. It's not the right strategy for Xbox, but it definitely works for PlayStation. So yeah, I think staggering the release of Spider-Man 2, I think two years is the ideal window. I wouldn't wait three personally. I think two years is better, um, but I agree with it. I think it's working really, really well for them, and I think they should continue shout out of the week unfortunately some bad news from sony this week uh deviation games who have, has been hit with layoffs with sources telling vgc as many as 90 members of staff may have been affected now sony does not own deviation games but they are publishing their next game it was part of like that sort of big number of partnerships that they talked about um and deviation was one of them uh, so it's really sad to see it's a lot of people saying like maybe these cuts are what's leading to them getting their company ready for a playstation purchase who knows um, but either way really really sad to see thank you guys so much for joining me please follow us on twitter and youtube at can for future updates once again i'm joel and i will see you all next week <laughs>